We'll read through to chapter 11, verse 1. So Daniel 10, beginning at verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar. The message was true, but the appointed time was long, and he understood the message and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant food, no meat or wine came into my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all till three three whole weeks were fulfilled. Now on the 24th day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose waist was girded with gold of Uphaz. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in color, and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision. But a great terror fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. Therefore I was left alone when I saw this great vision, and no strength remained in me, For my vigor was turned to frailty in me, and I retained no strength. Yet I heard the sound of his words. And while I heard the sound of his words, I was in a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. Suddenly a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, Understand the words that I speak to you, and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. While he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. Then he said to me, Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision refers to many days yet to come. When he had spoken such words to me, I turned my face toward the ground And became speechless. And suddenly, one having the likeness of the sons of men touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke, saying to him who stood before me, My Lord, because of the vision, my sorrows have overwhelmed me, and I have retained no strength. For how can this servant of my Lord talk with you, my Lord? As for me, no strength remains in me now nor is any breath left in me. Then again, the one having the likeness of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man, greatly beloved, fear not. Peace be to you. 
Be strong. Yes, be strong. So when he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? And now I must return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I have gone forth, indeed, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. No one upholds me against these, except Michael, your prince. Also in the first year of Darius the Mede, I, even I, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Thus far, scripture. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Daniel is a fascinating book. It's a blend of exciting stories and strange visions. And it takes place during a pivotal point in Israel's history. The book begins with Daniel being taken into exile. And it ends just after God's people return from that exile 70 years later. So Daniel lived during the whole period of exile. Now his book is basically separated into two halves. Chapters 1 through 6 contain narratives, and chapters 7 through 12 contain visions. And chapters 10 through 12 contain the one vision that concludes the book. A vision that really gets at the heart of what the book of Daniel is all about. And chapter 10 is the introduction to that vision. And it's a long introduction where Daniel describes in detail a mysterious and majestic visitor and his own response to that visitor. We're also given some tantalizing glimpses into the workings of the spiritual realm. And since this chapter introduces what comes in chapter 11, we have to look ahead to that chapter in order to understand ours. Now chapter 11 contains a complicated message. You almost need a map in front of you and different figures representing the various armies and kings just to make sense of what's happening. Yet Daniel's visitor intends for this complicated message to be an encouraging one. So when we navigate the remarkable contents of our chapter, chapter 10, we have to do it with the angel's words in verse 19 in mind. Fear not, Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. So I preach to you, Daniel 10, under the following theme and points. The victory of God's, the certainty of God's victory leads to strength and courage. First, Daniel pleads for revelation. Second, God responds with a majestic angel. And third, the angel delivers words of certain victory. So Daniel pleads for revelation. Now the passage opens with Daniel praying and fasting on the banks of the Tigris River. He's quite specific too in telling us the time and the place of the vision. With his previous visions, he would mention the year that the vision took place, but here he tells us the exact day. It's the 24th day of the first month of the third year of King Cyrus. 
And because he's so specific, we can date it on our calendar. Daniel had this vision on May the 11th, 535 B.C. And there's a reason he wants his readers to know when exactly it is that he was fasting. So it's the first month of the year, which is the month of Nisan. And just like we have New Year's celebrations in our first month, the people of the ancient Near East had New Year's celebrations too. Except their celebrations lasted for 11 days, and they started on the second day of the month. So the fact that Daniel has this vision on the 24th day, and has been fasting for three whole weeks, means that his fast began on the third day of the month, right after the 11-day party got started. Now he's letting his readers know that while everyone else was away celebrating, he was away fasting. In fact, he wasn't even near the celebration. He lived in Babylon, which is on the Euphrates River. But Daniel was fasting on the Tigris River. So he deprived himself of both his comforts and his home. And why would this have meant something to his readers? Well, we have to know what the situation was like for the Israelites at the time. Daniel has this vision in the third year of King Cyrus. Well, in the first year of King Cyrus, two years before this, the Israelites had been allowed to return to Jerusalem. We read all about that in the book of Ezra. So a large group of Israelites returns to Jerusalem and begins rebuilding the city. Most notably, they begin rebuilding the temple, the symbolic heart and soul of God's people. Rebuilding the temple meant that their exile was coming to an end. God's anger with them was satisfied. Like a married couple who had been separated and were now coming back together, they could look forward to a renewed commitment, a fresh start. And it was certainly an exciting time for Jews everywhere, even those like Daniel who were unable to return to Jerusalem. But the book of Ezra also tells us that this exciting time came quickly to an end. In their second year, after having laid the foundation of the temple, the Jews found themselves in trouble. Ezra 3, verses 4 and 5 says, Then the people of the land, and these would have been people settled there from other parts of the empire, discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. So you can imagine the blow this must have been to the Jewish people. They had come back with such optimism and such hope, and now this. But what's more, they must have wondered what God was doing. He had told them 70 years of exile, and now those 70 years were up. The king of the empire had even given his personal command for Israel to return. Was God giving his blessing and then suddenly taking it away? Was God still angry with them? As Ezra wrote, God's people were discouraged. Their hopes were frustrated. So when the Jews of that time would have read the first few verses of Daniel 10, they would have understood the importance immediately. Here was a brother of theirs, a brother with wealth and a position of authority in the Persian Empire who lived in one of its major cities. Yet during this New Year celebration, this brother had forsaken his prestige 
his comforts, his home, his good food, even his cleanliness, to sit in the dirt beside a river in humility before God. Daniel was suffering in solidarity with his people in Jerusalem. And not only him, but in verse 7, we see that there were others who were with him. He was letting the Jews in Jerusalem know that they certainly weren't alone in their frustration and their discouragement. They had certainly not been forgotten by those Jews who were still living comfortably. In fact, those Jews were actively supplicating God, petitioning God on Jerusalem's behalf. Now this practice of petitioning God on behalf of his people was always the mark of godly leaders in the Old Testament. Abraham, Moses, David, Isaiah. And the New Testament speaks of Christ being our advocate before the Father in heaven. So the Old Testament leaders who prayed for his people pointed the way to Christ. Daniel, dirty and uncomfortable, on the banks of an alien river, advocates before God for his people. And God provides what Daniel asks for. In verse 12, the man in linen says, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before God, your words have been heard, and I've come because of your words. Now, Daniel was an imperfect man. And if that's God's response to an imperfect man like Daniel... What do you think is his response to his own perfect son? And if Daniel understood the anxiety of God's people from afar, how much more does Christ, whose spirit dwells in our inner being, understand our own anxiety? And Christ is the one who advocates for you before the Father in heaven. So it must have meant a great deal for the Jews in Jerusalem to read that Daniel was fasting and praying on their behalf. But while Daniel was humbled in the dirt beside a river, Christ was humbled to death. And while Daniel's humility led to a revelation for Jerusalem, Christ's humility led to the eternal security of Jerusalem. It's in the deepest humility of the cross that God shows his highest love. The foundation of the church, the foundation of Israel, is rooted in the deep humility of the cross. And that's why there is no force under heaven that can ever move the church from her foundation. So Daniel's humility points to Christ's humility. And in our second point, we'll see God's response to Daniel's humility. Daniel had been at the Tigris for three weeks And finally, he receives a visitor in response. Now, Daniel has never received a visitor quite like this one. And he spends some time describing what he looks like. Now, this isn't the only time in Scripture that someone appears this way. A well-known example is when John sees Christ in the book of Revelation. Now, this has led some people to conclude that the man that Daniel sees is Jesus before his incarnation. And there certainly are similarities. They're both wearing robes. One has a golden sash, the other a golden belt. They have eyes of fire, shining faces, legs like burnished bronze, 
and a similar roaring sound to their voices. But Ezekiel has a similar kind of vision in Ezekiel 1. And there, the beings that appear this way are cherubim, angels. So there are similarities between the man that Daniel sees and Christ, but there are also similarities between the man and the cherubim. So we can't simply look at Daniel's description and conclude that he's seeing Christ, because we know that angels can appear that way too. But his description does tell us something important. There's actually a third connection in Scripture to the way this man appears. And that's the connection to the outfit of the Old Testament priests. The priests wore a linen robe and a golden sash. Their torso was covered in jewels. They had a gold plate on their forehead that would have flashed in the sunlight. And the purpose of making the garments look this way the Lord says to Moses, is for glory and for beauty. And we can take that to the way the man in linen appears too. He's wearing the heavenly version of priestly garments, garments that were worn for glory and for beauty. We can't know for certain whom this angelic being was. Daniel doesn't tell us. But he tells us in detail what this man looks like. So it's not his identity that's in focus here, but his appearance. And why is it significant that this man appears with the full glory and the full beauty of heaven? Because it shows Daniel the importance of the message that he's bringing. It shows the seriousness of it, the greatness of it. As I pointed to earlier in verse 12, the angel has come in response to Daniel's words. And Daniel had been praying on behalf of Jerusalem. So the dignity and the majesty of this angel is God's way of letting his people know that he took their situation very seriously. And this is perhaps also why the angel is so quick to explain why he didn't come sooner. It certainly wasn't because Daniel had been ignored. On the contrary, the angel says in verse 12 that from the first day, Daniel's words had been heard. Rather, the angel explains his delay in verse 13. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. Now, Daniel had been praying for three weeks, 21 days. So the angel is telling him that he wasn't able to come during that time because of spiritual resistance. Now, this is a very rare moment in Scripture where we're shown a specific event in the spiritual realm. This angelic being had somehow been resisted by the prince of Persia. Now some people, among them John Calvin, think that the prince of Persia was a man, one of the sons of Cyrus. But that doesn't fit very well with what was happening at the time. Cyrus had a good relationship with the Jews, and none of his sons were were persecuting them. In fact, Scripture doesn't tell us that any single person was responsible for what was going on in Jerusalem. It's simply that the people of the land were stirred up against them. So it's more likely that the prince of Persia is a spiritual being. And Michael, whom we know is an angel, is also called a prince. Now this prince of Persia must have been a powerful being. 
This man in linen, who appears to Daniel, is clearly an angel of importance. Yet the prince of Persia is able to resist him. It was only when Michael came to help that the angel was free to go to Daniel. And he provides an even more striking detail at the end of verse 21. There is none who contends with me against these except Michael, your prince. So not only are the forces of darkness powerful, but the forces of light are weak. Only Michael and this angel stand against them. Now these verses have led to all kinds of speculation among Christians. Some speculate that there are territorial spirits, spirits who control various parts of the earth. After all, the angel speaks here about the prince of Persia, and in verse 20 he speaks about the prince of Greece. In fact, in verse 13, the angel who appears to Daniel said that he had been left with the kings of Persia. So theirs was his jurisdiction. So then some Christians take this forward to today and argue that we have both good and evil national spirits. Princes of Canada, for example. We have to find out who these evil spirits are and oppose them. After all, Paul does say in Ephesians 6, verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So the battle that Daniel saw a glimpse into is certainly a real one and an ongoing one. And in that sense, we can appreciate the fervor of some Christians in fighting these battles. But we should also recognize the human tendency to get carried away with the exotic and the mysterious. Because this battle is the regular battle that we all know. The battle against sin in our hearts. The battle against wolves in the church. The battle against wickedness in the world around us. Against anything that sets itself up against the truth of God. Paul's point in Ephesians is that the real threat to us isn't physical, it's spiritual. And we don't resist this threat by prying into the mysteries of the spiritual realm, by identifying individual evil spirits or something like that. We resist the cosmic powers, Paul says, by committing ourselves to the truth, to understanding what God has given us in his word and wielding that word like a sword. We resist this threat by placing our faith where it belongs, in that eternally secure foundation of the cross of Jesus Christ. In this way, our faith becomes a shield. And above all, we resist this threat through prayer. Daniel 10 shows us that God certainly hears the prayer of a humble man. And we have the privilege of praying in the name of Jesus Christ, of approaching God with the humility of Christ. So how much more than Daniel's prayer will God hear our prayers? Yet this chapter also shows us that God may not always respond in the way that we would like, and that the reasons will be beyond what we can know or even imagine. Yet despite that, 
we must always pray persistently. Daniel prayed for three weeks straight. And Paul commands us in Ephesians 6 to pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Because when we pray persistently, again and again, for the same thing, then our persistence itself becomes a prayer. It becomes a plea to God to address what we've repeatedly been bringing. It shows God just how serious we are about the matter. So this angel has come in response to Daniel's persistent prayers. Daniel doesn't record his prayer for us, but we can tell from the angel's words what it was that Daniel was praying for. On verse 12, the angel acknowledged that Daniel had set his heart to understand. And understand what? Well, in verse 14, the angel says, I have come to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision is for days yet to come. So Daniel was concerned about the well-being of his people. And the angel was going to address that by bringing him a vision about the future. And this is our third point. Now this vision was going to be different from previous visions. In chapters 7 and 8, Daniel had seen various beasts and animals, each representing different kingdoms of the earth. And these visions had given Daniel a broad view of history of the rise and fall of empires over centuries. And the visions had communicated that through powerful and even frightening images. But this vision wouldn't be like that. The angel says to Daniel in verse 21, I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. It's as though he's bringing Daniel a page of God's very detailed plans for the future. No images, no symbols, just the facts themselves. Now you'll notice in the New King James that there's brackets around verse 21b and 11 verse 1, and they belong together. So it reads, There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Now, the important thing is that the hymn there doesn't refer to Darius the Mede. It refers to Michael. The angel speaking to Daniel strengthened Michael in the first year of Darius the Mede. So if we take together what the angel says about him and Michael in the whole passage, then we have the following. Michael came to help Daniel's visitor when he was opposed by the prince of Persia. And Daniel's visitor strengthened Michael in the first year of Darius the Mede. And these two angels are standing alone against the forces of darkness. Now these are more than just interesting facts about the spiritual world. This is meant to teach God's people something. It's meant to show God's strength. Throughout chapter 10, Daniel is in a state of shock. He can hardly speak And he's always on the verge of fainting. He spends quite a bit of time describing his own weakness. And then, in verses 18 and 19, the angel reaches out and touches Daniel. And this touch 
strengthens him. He's now able to speak with the angel and hear what the angel has to say. Now, the reason Daniel describes his weakness so thoroughly is that it plays right into the theme of these final chapters. Daniel is overwhelmed. The angels are overwhelmed. God's people are overwhelmed. Yet in the midst of all this opposition, there is strength. The angel strengthens Daniel, and the angels strengthen each other. The forces of darkness may be strong. They may have overwhelming odds. But the strength of God cuts through that with ease. The strength of God gives Daniel what he needs in that moment. The strength of God gives the angels what they need to stand firm against the enemy. It's sufficient, and it can't be overcome. And this strength is what the angel's revelation is meant to bring to God's people. He touches Daniel, and Daniel is strengthened. And his revelation touches God's people, and God's people are strengthened. And how does this revelation do that? What is it about all the minute details of chapter 11 that gives God's people strength? Well, it tells them two things. It tells them that every single event in history, every movement of every army, every decision of every king has been ordained by God. The future has been written down in all of its details. But more importantly, it also tells them that Come what may, God's people will prevail. The angel speaks of a time in the future when the prince of Persia will be replaced by the prince of Greece. A southern king and a northern king will fight with each other and Israel will be caught in the middle. An especially wicked king will arise who will try and destroy the faith of God's people. So the weakness that God's people are facing now with the opposition in Jerusalem, is only just the beginning. Yet despite the great weakness that is coming, where all will seem hopeless, God's people will prevail. He has arranged every detail of history in such a way that God's people will prevail. And it has always pleased God, as Paul says, to choose the weak things of the world to shame the strong the foolish things to shame the wise. For when were God's people the weakest? When did it appear as though God's great plan had failed? When Jesus died on the cross. It must have seemed as though Satan had won. The Savior God had sent to the world was dead. Yet in this apparent weakness, there was eternal strength. For the descent into hell and the death that Christ suffered was actually our descent into hell and our death. In the death of Christ, there was life for all of God's people. In the weakness of the cross, there was the strength of life. And this is the great revelation that strengthens God's people. Chapter 10, verse 1 says that a word was revealed to Daniel. And John 1 verse 1 says that the word became flesh. The revelation that Daniel longed for, 
the revelation that the world really needed was the person of Jesus Christ. The revelation that the angel brought addressed the insecurity of God's people in Jerusalem. But the revelation of Christ addressed the true insecurity of the world, the insecurity brought about by sin. The fact that living a sinful life, a life in rebellion against God, is the true discouragement and the true frustration. Without Christ, the world would have been forever at the mercy of the princes of Persia and Greece. The world would have forever been in a state of shock, like Daniel. But Christ is the revelation who broke the darkness. He is the revelation who imparts eternal and unbreakable strength to the weak who come to him in faith. Revelation 12 says that when Christ was revealed, Michael and the other angels, weak as they once were, overcame their enemies and defeated them. The strength of God was made victorious in Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that the devil and his angels no longer oppose us. They certainly do. We can see the forces of the world lining themselves up against the truth. And at times, it can look hopeless. But the victory of Christ means that there's no more uncertainty. We know for certain how history will end. This is why we can lift our hope and our joy out of the present and place it in the future. Because we know that every tiny detail of history has been written down by God and has been written down in such a way that his people will prevail. So I'll close with what Daniel says about those latter days in chapter 12. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Amen. Let's respond to the message with the words of hymn 69, stanzas 1 through 3.